strategies for crisis-driven innovation. When you're in the middle of the swamp and the alligators are snapping at your legs, you can be forgiven for not giving too much precious headspace to thinking about plans for draining the swamp. But assuming you get out of that scrape in one piece, it might be worth it. The same is true for our current experience of a crisis-shaken world thanks to COVID-19. Even though there are very pressing concerns, it might be useful to pause for a moment and try to draw out some insights which we might be able to leverage in the future, helping to create organisations which are a little less fragile. A good place to begin is to remind ourselves of the word's origin. Crisis comes from the Greek and means turning point. While it may feel right now as if we're slamming into a brick wall at high velocity, it's also clear that our future trajectories may not be quite the same. And that's particularly true about our approach to innovation. Because crisis is a powerful stimulus for innovation, a trigger for thinking about how to make it happen differently. Under normal circumstances, we spend a lot of time worrying about how to get out of the box. Well, crisis unceremoniously throws us out and we have to find new ways of working. It's emphatically not business as usual. We need novel responses. Now, for most of us, thankfully, crisis is a rare experience, mostly arriving unexpectedly. But in some places, it's the normal. Let me take you to one. Imagine the scene immediately after an earthquake. In a few short moments, a whole city is devastated. Buildings collapse on each other, Roads are torn apart, infrastructure smashed to pieces, communication severed, vital supplies suddenly cut off. Chaos. This is the typical aftermath of a humanitarian disaster. Earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, tidal waves, famine, there's no shortage of natural disasters. And if we wanted to add to our miserable list, there are plenty of man-made examples to put on the pile. The challenge in this space is, of course, one of innovation. It's about solving problems quickly, often as a matter literally of life and death, of survival. And it's a context in which normal solution pathways may be blocked. We can't use our usual approaches. The good news is that innovation happens here, again and again demonstrating, if we needed a reminder, the wonderful ways in which human creativity can find ways around obstacles. Let's look at Haiti and the terrible 2010 earthquake. Despite the chaos on the ground, within a few short hours, innovation began crawling out from beneath the rubble. In the days which followed, hundreds of examples of problem-solving emerged, gathering momentum, building to a scale of response which helped the city get back on its feet. Some of the solutions co-created and diffused included creating an instant banking system across which aid agencies could distribute cash to buy food, medicines and other essentials. Open street mapping to provide up-to-date information about affected populations damaged infrastructure, key emergency locations, and so on. Reuniting displaced persons using the phone network as a database and communication centre. Deploying 3D printing to quickly produce badly needed spare parts for hospitals. 
and mobilizing an army of online volunteer designers to supply the key software and providing translation services to render urgent information in regional dialects, again, with the help of an international network of volunteer translators. Now, this isn't an isolated case. Humanitarian innovation happens repeatedly and in similar fashion. So we might be able to explore some of the patterns in this world and extract some insights and possible strategies for working with crisis-driven innovation. It might be useful to begin with a simple map of the crisis innovation space, just to remind ourselves of the nature of the innovation challenge, because it's fundamentally one of forced reframing. Under normal conditions, our organisations develop ways of making innovation happen, both in terms of incremental, doing what we do better, and radical, doing something completely different. Our recipes, repertoires and routines for innovation work fine, but when the frame changes, when we're forced to take new things into account, where our old way of framing the world is pushed aside, then we have to develop novel approaches. This twilight zone is essentially uncertain, short on information, requiring us to work in a fog and innovate by experimenting, probing and learning. It's the kind of space which entrepreneurs are used to, tolerating ambiguity, taking risks, embracing a degree of failure to enable fast learning. So, what approaches might organisations take in this space? Well, there seem to be four core themes which emerge repeatedly. The first is enhanced inspiration. This is a space where focused collective intelligence can make a difference, bringing to bear many different minds and perspectives rapidly to open up solution possibilities. We're increasingly aware of the power of crowdsourcing solutions, getting many minds to focus quickly on the same challenge. But this isn't, in fact, a new idea. The principle traces right back to early innovation contests. For example, in early 18th century Britain, there was a crisis confronting its very identity as a major maritime power. Its ships kept getting lost, sometimes with tragic consequences. The cause was a lack of accurate navigation, which in turn could be traced back to an inability to calculate longitude because there wasn't a reliable, portable timepiece available for ships to carry. Under pressure from both the military and civilian navies, the Admiralty made the comment that nothing is so much wanted and desired at sea as the discovery of the longitude for the safety and quickness of voyages, the preservation of ships, and the lives of men. And this led to the 1714 Longitude Act, in which the British government offered a huge financial prize for a solution which could find longitude to within half a degree. The contest was eventually won by a carpenter named John Harrison, but not before it had had the effect of mobilising countless minds on the focused task in hand, and it set a pattern for future use of this approach. For example, just across the channel, key food preservation technologies like canning or the use of margarine as an alternative to butter, which goes bad after a few days. These owe their origins to similar innovation contests designed to deal with the crisis conditions linked to conducting military operations. So using such approaches in humanitarian crises makes sense. 
especially where there's an increasingly available set of technologies to enable collection, capture and development of crowdsourced ideas. Examples include the use of crowdsourcing to provide inputs of ideas and skills to develop open street maps, generate design files for 3D printing of spare parts, or linking together linguists to help offer translation services in local languages and dialects. All of these use a mixture of human creativity and knowledge linked across technological pathways focused on key crisis challenges. The second solution strategy is around entrepreneurial improvisation. Now, by definition, crisis may often bring with it a lack of resources, so solutions need to be built up from frugal principles, making do with whatever's to hand. It's like the TV show Scrap Heap Challenge, often involving adaptation or repurposing what's sometimes called bricolage after the French word. Perhaps the most famous example of this occurred during the Apollo 13 crisis, when the world held its breath following Jim Lovell's laconic message back to Mission Control. Houston, we've had a problem. With one of its main oxygen tanks ruptured and with the clock ticking away, the teams on the ground and in the module had to improvise solutions and fast. Famously, they had a problem with securing enough breathable oxygen for three men in a capsule only designed to take two and so built an air purifier system using plastic covers from their flight plans, plastic bags, some sticky tape, and a soggy sock. It worked. Such repurposing and adaptation is a common experience in disaster zones, where solutions are improvised and then refined. For example, the White Hats volunteer response team trying to deal with the aftermath of bombing and shelling in war-torn Syria began to use simple airbeds, inflatable mattresses, to help lift rubble gently so as not to injure anyone trapped beneath. In collaboration with Field Ready, they then developed an airbag that could be made with readily accessible local materials and tools and which could be deployed for a tenth of the cost of purchasing a purpose-built device. Now the third area in which solutions emerge is around knowledge integration. The power of collective intelligence isn't just mobilising many minds via crowdsourcing ideas. It's also about different minds, about enhancing diversity, bringing and combining different knowledge sets across functions, across boundaries, across disciplines. Now, the idea of bridging across different worlds isn't new. It was something Thomas Edison deployed to great effect in his invention factory bringing together different worlds of knowledge and expertise to focus on key problems. And a good example of such an approach in the humanitarian space is the Aravind Eye Care System, which originated with an, a retired eye surgeon working in India. He was concerned with dealing with a different kind of crisis, the chronic problems of the poor, unable to afford health care. In his case, the relatively straightforward surgery needed to treat cataracts. His challenge was to find a low-cost, repeatable and safe solution. And he found one, not in the medical world in which he'd spent his entire career, but underneath McDonald's golden arches. By borrowing and repurposing techniques from fast food and mass production of cars, he was able to cut the cost of such operations by a factor of 10, whilst maintaining an enviable safety record. 
Today, around 12 million people can see who would otherwise have gone blind because of untreated cataracts. The last area in which solutions might develop relies on intrepid exploration. Now, it's often said about innovation, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. You can't innovate without accepting that failure is going to be a part of the story. That, of course, is the wisdom behind the current interest in agile approaches, looking for fast learning cycles to drive innovation. And it's absolutely true in crisis conditions. As we've seen, there's a need for fast improvisation and experiment. But this can pose a challenge for larger organisations having to suddenly behave like entrepreneurs. Because entrepreneurs break the rules. That's their role, as iconoclasts, breaking through to something new. For their parent organisation, this is often in direct opposition to key principles of stability, control and responsibility. And that's certainly true in the humanitarian space, which is tightly regulated by concerns around ethics and accountability. But it's the same in many other sectors, healthcare, food supply, banking and insurance. So what's needed is local level experimentation within some kind of a framework in which it's okay to bend the rules, suspend them, allow space for experimentation and even failure, but under controlled or at least quarantined conditions. Now, all these approaches to innovation under crisis conditions aren't new, and they're not confined to the humanitarian sector. Indeed, we've seen plenty of them emerge as we try to deal with the COVID-19 crisis. Crowdsourcing solutions for ventilators and protective equipment, improvising and repurposing existing equipment, bringing together different groups into task forces and challenge response teams, and bending or suspending normal rules until we can get back to some kind of stability. So we can and do respond well in times of crisis, not least by altering our innovation approaches. But that begs a key question, whether we aim for some degree of carryover, maintaining a capability for this different approach to innovation, or whether we simply put it all back in the cupboard again and wait for the next crisis to hit. Now, if we're serious about preserving some of this capacity, then we need a number of components. First of all, the willingness to accept that crisis will happen. And so preparing for it by rehearsing our responses under non-crisis conditions. Simulation and practicing, constructing a sense of crisis before it hits. And we could improve our ability to see crises coming, or at least get early enough warning by creating or linking up with some kind of observatory. And we could build laboratory capability. A place where it's okay to think unthinkable things, experiment under control conditions, push the envelope and occasionally, but safely, break things. As the current crisis has shown us, we might need to turn our organisational tanker suddenly. And so it might help if we've got early warning radar, some kind of agility boosters or thrusters, and having on board a crisis crew able, at least temporarily, to steer the ship through these rough waters back to a calmer sea.